I'll thank everyone for coming tonight. This will be my last night here in North Carolina for quite some time, and usually uh, on the last night at, uh, I try to make our setting a little more informal, just ask the questions. But I wanted to say that I had a very nice visit and met a lot of nice devotees. Some devotees who have been coming to my talks for some time and continue to come, and then new faces as well, and new people who are not yet, uh, don't realize they're devotees yet. also met a number of them, so it's been a very pleasant visit. And I think, having said that, it's this was kind of an impromptu performance by Gaurangi that she was apparently harboring in her heart to perform for some time, and her husband asked me about it, and I got that message later on in the afternoon today, so I said, okay, and we just thought it was wonderful, and so it's probably worth saying something about as well, briefly, before we entertain any questions or any discussion. Of course, it's a high topic, but that's Gaudi Vaishnavism. <laughs> it's a pretty high ideal, one in which, as I sometimes would like to say, is such that while every religious tradition teaches that God is the most worshipable object, we teach about the worshipable object of God, which turns the religious world upside down, so to speak. Confusing idea, the worshipable object of Krishna being Radha. I had mentioned the other day, uh, worth repeating, that I was in a bookstore not long ago and I picked up a book of the Dalai Lama, where there's questions and answers with the Dalai Lama, and, and someone asked the Lama, if God is the source of everything, then was the source of God? You get that kind of a question every now and then. And he said, well, that's why we don't believe in God, because there's no answer to that question. That was his answer. But I thought, well, I, I would have answered that much differently. <laughs> Obviously, because I'm a theist, but my answer was that the source of Krishna is God, and the source of Krishna is Radha. And then if you ask the source of Radha, the answer is Krishna. So this is Achintya Veda Veda of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the two are one and different. The love that Radha personifies corresponds with the form of the Absolute that we know as Krishna, which is the Absolute, not only dancing and charmed in Leela, but troubled for that matter, if she's not pleased with him. So, relative to the question the Dalai Lama was asked, love, which comes first, like they say, the seed or the tree, the love is not different from Krishna, and Krishna is not different from the love. Krishna is in, where is he? He's in the hearts of his devotees. He corresponds, all of his appearances correspond with the, the love of his devotees. That Swarup Shakti that she personifies, the Haladini aspect in particular, it's not that it's not within him, it is, but it comes out when, I mean forever, in the form of Radha that he may taste himself. Sugar is sweet, but it can't taste itself, so that one becomes... Two, language is obviously limited here. It's an event, an eternal event. It's a, it's a way of talking about the nature of ultimate reality that's uh, very uh, charming and a way that uh, is uh, experienceable through practice. Of course, the experience may be a little different than what we think it might be from what we've heard and from language and so forth and philosophy, which is limited in terms of... Um, being able to do justice to that. 
task of great persons, great uh, charges to explain all these things to us is is like the task of um, a musician trying to explain music to deaf people. It's difficult, but they do a good job, our, our charges. They've done a wonderful job. And enough, hopefully, and probably certainly uh, could be characterized like this, to compel people to run after that and take up the kind of practices that uh, that are necessary. It's a long and winding road. And that's the nature of love. It's Rupa Goswami has said in Ujjval Nilmani, as quoted by Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Ahiri Vagati Premna Swabhava Kutilabhavet Ahitu Hetoscha That love moves, he says, like a snake, in a crooked way, not in a straight way, but in a crooked way. And so it's unpredictable, where it will take us, nobody knows. Some general idea that it will be good for us. And we cannot resist it, but exactly where, we cannot say. And and in the course of going there, then the environment may not seem to cooperate, always. Krishna says, I'm over here, we go over there. And then he says, I'm over here, we can't complain. And say, oh, you said you were over here, and I took all the trouble to go here. Now you're saying... You're over there. No, we, we have to go like that. So, love is a little unpredictable. It's, um, as I said before, we search in life and we cannot rest until we find love. But once we find it, we don't sit still. Love doesn't allow us to. It has a movement of its own that's dynamic and full of uncertainty <laughs> and disconcerting, but you can't get off, so to speak. It's... It's the thrill of, like on the roller coaster as I was a kid, I, they used to say, you know, anyway, I never liked it that much, but you go around and it looks like you're going to get thrown off. You know you're not, but it sure feels like it. And maybe you get sick to your stomach, but you, you don't get off the ride. Of course, you can't get off, but you get back on it, is the point. So, love has a movement of its own. So, love and Leela, it's absolute as dancing and playful and, and unpredictable. And so, we have a dynamic idea of the absolute. And this particular verse of Prabhu Goswami is pertinent to the dance in particular because when he cites it in Ujjbal Nilmani, when he cites it, he's speaking about this mana. Mana is a type of separation. There are four types of separation in Madhur Dirasa. We call separation in general Vipralamba in Madhurya. And there are four types. There is um, Purvarag, Man. Prima Vaichitya and Prabhas. Of course, this is a huge topic, Vipralamba, but um, very briefly, and each of these has four corresponding types of union, Sambhog. Vipralamba and Sambhog are like the low and the high tide of, of the ocean. In the low tide of separation, there's possibility to enter. At high tide, it's not possible, but if you enter at low tide, then you can be in for the high tide as well, something like that. Or like a river that winds and flows down two banks, separation and union, separation and union. So the leela is moving like this, between union, between separation. And so there are four corresponding types of union with four types of 
separation. Puvarag is that separation that is felt, and all of these, by the way, are experienced in Prem Bhakti. We have Sadhana Bhakti, Bhava Bhakti, Prem Bhakti. We do Bhakti for Bhakti's sake, not for anything else. Nonetheless, there are developmental stages of Bhakti. So, in that sense, in consideration of that, we do Bhava Bhakti for, excuse me, we do Sadhana Bhakti for Bhava Bhakti to attain that. That is the graduation then from Sadhana Bhakti. And we do Bhava Bhakti for Prem Bhakti. When we attain Prem, we've graduated from Bhava Bhakti. Bhava Bhakti is like, uh, has elements of Sadhana and elements of Prem. Prema Suryamsu Samyabhak. It's an Amsu of the sun, Surya of Prem, a ray of the sun of Prem. And so, in Bhava Bhakti, the cultivation of that is a kind of sadhana, but it's a cultivation of bhava that is not yet manifest in sadhana bhakti, where there's also a, a cultivation. There, the cultivation is more of dhenya, of submission, sharanagati. Sharanagati is kind of the culmination of sadhana bhakti. It begins with that, but this, it begins with, um, in much as sharanagati and shraddha have a correspondence. Krishna says, Sarva Dharman Pratyajamami Kam Sharanam Raja. Give up all other Dharma, just depend on me. This means if you do this, then that's the beginning of bhakti. But that Sharanagati is to be cultivated in sadhana bhakti. And in Ruchi, higher stage, second to the last stage of sadhana, that Sharanagati is fully in place. So this, in our Diksha mantras, for example, they are all in the, in the dative case and they all indicate submission, sharanagati, and they're to help us to cultivate that. The Mahamantra, the Krishna Namantra is all in the vocative case. So there's no kind of restriction on it. It can be practiced from beginning to end. For those who are not submissive, they can say, Oh Krishna, oh Hari, and in the end, exclaiming out of love also. At which time then the mantra, Diksha Mantra, that in a dative case that'll be retired. So Nam comes to help us in the beginning, qualifies us in such a way that we are capable of, under good guidance, cultivating the uh, Krishna Nam, Bhajan, Nam Sankirtan in earnest. So the Diksha Mantras, they come to help us. As they've helped us sufficiently, then they can retire. And Nam continues, even in Golok, energizing in the background as Nam comes forward in the form of actual Lila Seva. So at any rate, sadhana bhakti is distinct from bhava bhakti. And in bhava bhakti, then we have some bhava, so we can talk about it, we can churn it, we can cultivate it. Whereas in sadhana bhakti, then some, there's some overlapping between longing, which is characteristic of bhava bhakti, and submission, which is characteristic of sadhana bhakti. Obviously, we have some longing in sadhana bhakti. And obviously, in bhava bhakti, there's complete submission as well. But the two are characterized primarily by submission and that the cultivation of that and all that involves sadhana bhakti and longing, lalasa in bhava bhakti and all that involves. And of course, as I say, that cultivation of longing in, in bhava bhakti culminates in brain. And all of these types of separation and union that we read about in the scriptures, they all are experienced in Prem. That means in, and in Madurja Prem in particular. Otherwise in other Rasas we have Yog and Ayog. 
Ayog is further divided into Viyog and Utkanta. And this type of separation and the corresponding unions of Siddhi, Tushti and Stita that are relative to Dasya Bhakti in Goloka and uh, in Brajan, Sakya Bhakti and Vatsalya Bhakti. They also have their application in Madhurya Bhakti of the handmaidens of Radha who are Dasis of Radha. So there's a Dasya element, you see, in the Madhurya and it applies there. These are, of course, as they say, complicated and high topics. This is all I'm speaking all here about Prem. At the same time, is there any scope for separation in, in bhava and uh, bhakti and, and sadhana bhakti? And there is, of course. Um, and particularly this yoga and ayoga, utkanta and its divisions, utkanta of ayoga, separation and viyoga, we find, for example, in the life of, uh, that has been shown to us of Narada for our benefit. Sometimes Narada is seen as a sadhana siddha. We know about his previous life as a Gandharva. We know the results of his offending the kirtan and taking birth as a son of a maidservant and getting the association of the devotees. And in their association, hearing about Krishna is the implication. And developing attraction for Krishna without having met him, having heard about him. To what extent that when his mother died from, I think she was bit by a snake, snake bite, she died. What did he do? He performed a funeral, of course, for his mother. He performed a funeral. And what was the funeral? He burned the whole house down. He heard well. He heard well, and then he had the good fortune, it's an odd way of talking about it, but of having what he heard exemplified before him in a way that was on no uncertain terms, as they say. He saw the nature of material life the nature of material attachment. And he had some budding attachment to Krishna. It wasn't just on the basis of Vedanta, that he could burn the whole house and forgo all the feelings for his mother and so forth and so on. This is a very cruel idea, <laughs> this Vedanta, but based on bhakti. Bhakti and Vedanta, the two things together, right? Gaudiya Vedanta. Gaudiya Vedanta brings Vedanta, gives Vedanta a human face. It unites humanity with spirituality. Vedanta divorces humanity from spirituality and Gaudiya Vedanta unites the two. It's a very wonderful idea actually. And tells us, invalidates Gaudiya Vedanta, all of our human feelings for love and affection and so forth. That Vedanta in of itself doesn't validate. It says it's all maya. All the feelings, all the variety, you know, it just doesn't exist. Dvaita Vedanta, of course, I'm talking about here. And other forms of Vedanta, be it Vishishta Dvaita, Dvaita Dvaita, they also don't fully validate the human feeling. The feeling for affectionate love, maybe for reverential love, but that doesn't have much to do with humanity. Reverential love is, we don't even call it love here in human society, practically, when we have reverence for another another person, a great person or something like, creates such distance. But intimate love, you know, friendly love, parental love, romantic love, and so forth, this, this is really what, especially romantic love, is what's making the world go round. And Gaudiya Vedanta validates this, that there is some truth to this, that what everyone's chasing after, 
that has some uh, place in reality, in a high place. And of course, by putting Krishna in the center, then that's what I mean by validating. It's, it's not to be done away with. It's to be experienced rather than off-center when properly centered. And it becomes the, the extreme of selflessness and devotion and so forth and so on. So a very special kind of Vedanta. And we, we're troubled by this because we have these human sensibilities and then we have this uh, philosophy, Vedanta. It was a kind of a scientific look at life and it just t- dissects everything and uh, emotions evaporate and so forth. But Gaudiya Vedanta or Bhakti Vedanta bring these two together, they harmonize them for us and tell us it's all such aspirations that we have as humans are attainable, are realizable, they're worthy, they have validity and so on. So Nard, he burned the house but he had some, in the basis of what, not just having heard that you've had many mothers before and all things will pass and so on and so forth, but he was associated, as Prabhupada puts it, with the Bhakti Vedantas. So we can understand. He had developed some Utkanta. So this plays out not only in Prem, but in, as it does in the different, uh, in Samboga or Sambanda Anuga, Bhakti, Bhakti of Sakyarasa, and, and also, as I said briefly, in, in relation to the handmaidens of Radha to an extent, but also in, in our life as sadhakas. He's an example of this, Utkanta. And then he got from that, what did he do? He burned the whole house and just traveled, looking for Krishna, settled somewhere in the forest, and, and he got union, Siddhi. Krishna gave him a dar- darshan. And then what did he do? He disappeared. So that's Biyog. Utkanta, Biyog. He disappeared, and that made Nard's heart grow fonder. And... He told him, this is why I give you some darshan, you're a kuyogi, you're a false yogi, you're attached to the forest. <laughs> of all things, <laughs> to living peacefully, you're attached to that. Can't have that either. My life is not like that. I'm a dancer and and so forth. So so that, anyway, of course, Nard is an example there, Vaidhi Bhakti, and he got then Pushti and Stita, and he went back to God, and he got his veena, and there he was. Our route will be a little different because we are interested in Golok and in Brajabhakti, so we won't get out by Kunta body and go direct to Bhakti like he got his Veena and so forth. We get birth in Goloka and from there then be born in a Gopi family and develop from there because they are developments. And these are some of the developments then. This Vipralamba, for example, and Utkanta and Biyoga and Yoga and all these things in the rasas of Braj. So Thai kind of uh, high topics. Good to know the theory and so forth, and wonderful that we can apply this separation concept to some extent, of course, to ourselves as, as sadhakas or bhavabhaktas, having not attained perfection of prem, sneha, man, pranay, raghunarag, bhav, mahabhav, all of these things. Mahaprabhu, of course, is sometimes called the vipralambamurti, the very form of Separation, he embodied separation. He showed us that through separation we can enter. As I said, there's the low tide, you can go in. In high tide, that'll be uh, no entryway. If you take birth in Krishna Lila, I should say when you do, then first you'll experience Purvarag. Or Utkant, depends on your rasa, but say 
relative to the dance, conjugal love, then Utkanta heard about him, heard his name, fallen in love with him, and feeling separation from him, even though he even met him, anticipation of what it would be like, and the devotee's love comes first. Then Krishna ratifies that love and shows his love. You see that in the Bhagavatam, in the Krishna book, we can find it. The gopis have love, but it's not, it's not sure that Krishna hasn't shown them that he loves them. During the gopi Bastrahana Leela, then he accepts them. In further demonstration, next year or so, in Rasa Leela, then it's the consummation of the whole affair. It's consummated. It's, of course, it's still secret, but and there he shows his love there. He reciprocates. So this is all very instructive to the sadhakas, especially as we advance and we become, develop interest in the ideal of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, how that will all unfold. So this is, anyway, Purvarag. And then Man, which is what is shown in the dance, this is that angry love of Radha. And this is in particular what Rupa Goswami is talking about when he cites that verse. Love moves in a crooked way. Sometimes with cause, sometimes without cause. Sometimes for good reason she's angry, and sometimes for no reason she may be, no apparent reason she may be angry. So showing this kind of anger like lovers quarrel, it's a very, um, it's particular to Radha and her group, and it kind of helps to show the extreme of of Gaudiya Vaishnavism's allegiance to Radha, which um, causes them to sometimes in bhava, in prem, speak uh, in ways about God that people of Vaikuntha would have to cover their ears. How can you talk about him like that? Uh, go away, I don't want anything to do with you. Since your childhood, all the way up, you've just been you know, unfaithful, a rascal, uh, all these kind of things. This is very extreme. That, At any rate, that Man, anger, it means jealous anger, something like that. And there are many shades of it and so forth. It causes a kind of separation. It is a type of separation that can happen for, like I say, many, for good reasons, for bad reasons, or for no reason. But um, it's a type of separation. This is the second and, uh, of them. And then Premavaichiti means in his presence, for example, Radha will experience separation in the presence by. The classic example is she's sitting with him and Madhu Mongol chases away the, the Madhu Kanta or the, the bumblebee, Madhusudan. And he says, Madhusudan's gone. And she thinks where Krishna's gone, although he's right there. And the thought of his leaving sends her into separation. And Pravas, Pravas is the, that separation that when Krishna goes out to cowherd and comes back. And then there's Dura Pravas, which is a section of that, where he, in the Prakat Lila, the Manifest he actually goes to Mathura, or appears to, and, and Dwarka, and so forth. He's gone for Dura for a long time. And this is the extreme of separation, and it has the corresponding Samridhiman-Sambhog union. And when that union comes, then it's all over. The Lila's over, the Prakat Lila, and they go back to God, and then that doesn't happen anymore. That's why the Goswami say, in a general way, in Goloka, in the Aprakat Lila, the unmanifest Lila, there's no more separation. Still, Krishna's going cowherding and gone for the day, and so there is some separation, but he doesn't go away, leave and uh, for a long time and so forth. And This is the extreme of separation, and it has, as I say, the corresponding extreme of union. And in this way, separation is meant to enhance 
union. And you have, of course, experienced it in everyday life. We had experience of it recently in just an ordinary, well, not so ordinary, event at uh, Audariyar Monastery in California when our four yearlings, calves, and they're all, you know, small, like Matura's cows, they got lost from the rest of the herd in the forest. And we're just surrounded by acres and acres and hundreds of acres of, of forest. And so we heard them and we, you know, went brought one mother to two mothers down there and, and tried to herd them back and one mother managed to bring two of them but one lady who is the wildest lady who happens to be from North Carolina uh, her name is Suki Red Cow and she came to us pregnant her son is Sridham he was born on uh, the eve of Radhastami and so we named him Sridham and right next to him at the exact same time uh, another calf was born girl we named her Srimati, both after uh, Radha Kusridam, of course, the brother of Srimati, another name for for Radha. So, anyway, he's a really nice bull, really good-looking fellow, and, um, you know, sometimes you have your favorites and all these things, and he happened to be my favorite, so... And she happens to be my favorite, too, because she's just got so much spunk, and, you know, she's really quite wild. And then another little calf, a bull calf named Prashad, from our cow Raghu, who's our main milker, wonderful cow, was with them. So the two calves and Suki, they are off in the forest. And anyway, they got lost, and we lost them, and we looked for them for about six and a half hours. We scanned out through the whole forest, and we were on a ridge top, so the hill goes down, and she's pregnant. And so as she went down, the idea of going up became less desirable to her, and the more she went down, less desirable. And so anyway, we went everywhere. We looked for six and a half hours through the forest. And the extent to which one had affection for these cows, of course, which is pretty considerable for everybody there, because it's just a major part of our whole life there, taking care of these cows, and as it should be. And um, as the hours went on, and you know, the thought came to everyone's mind, maybe we won't find them. It's hundreds and hundreds of acres. And then, you know, you just, well, you know, you could see Sridham, Suki, Prashad everywhere. You couldn't get them off your mind. The thought of, you know, sleeping was just not an option when night was coming. How could you possibly go to sleep? It's just, so this is, you know, give us some example of the the consuming nature of affection for Krishna that the gopis, for example, experience. It is said in union there's one Krishna, but in separation there are millions of Krishna. Wherever you look, he's everywhere. He's every, everything reminding you of him. This is the nature of love, and in separation everything reminds you of the object of your affection. So, these kind of thoughts we had. Of course, we found them. And I have to say that it's a very relishable experience that all that separation, as painful as it was, finding them was very <laughs> extraordinary. To, you know, you see them in a light that you've never seen them before. So the finding of them makes all the separation, when you think back on it, to be worthwhile. And of course, in relation to the, to the course, cows are, are the gods, so it's not that far of a stretch. But in Prem, then, from this, these kind of examples, we can have them in our own life. We get some idea what is the nature of prema and what is the virtue 
of separation. Of course, it's not painful at all because it's all centered on pleasing Krishna. If Krishna puts me in this condition, if it's pleasing him, then I'll be separate. But I don't like it, but it's painful, but I can endure the pain because it's all for his pleasure. And it's ultimately, of course, not painful in the sense that it's ecstatic, blissful, full of ananda. Sanatana Goswami gives an example that if you take ice and you put it on the body, it's cold, but it may feel like burning, like it burns, something like that. It may look painful, but actually it's it's blissful, it's absorbing, and it's consuming. And so, because of its consuming nature, it's sometimes, uh, and because it's an entryway, so to speak, into the whole affair, as shown by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in Puri, in his Antilila, Mahaprabhu is showing, he comes out of Shiva Sangam, he's doing kirtan in Shiva Sangam, nobody can get in, except his own intimates. No new people can get in. Those who try to force their way are rejected. But some good people wanted to get in and they would sit on the bank of the Ganges and aspire for such. And for them, one side of Mahaprabhu came out. And that, that Shiva Sangam Kirtan, this is synonymous with Vrindavan, Rasalila and so forth. So he came out for them to teach the way to enter in. And the whole Leela then he's teaching how to enter into the kirtan at the house of Sri Vastakur. And he, you know, he's traveling and preaching and doing kirtan in public. And at a certain point of his outreach, because his outreach is coming from reaching within and has substance, as he reaches out and preaches, as our preaching should, it should be an overflow of our enthusiasm, not just some duty or something like that that we have to do or... When I was, you know, and I was a good book distributor and it's gone. And my system was in the beginning, I would go after hearing the class and all in New Dwarkan and taking Prashad in the morning. This is before book distribution was organized and systematized and so forth. I'd go before Rukmini and Dwarkadishta and I'd just chant Japa until I got electrified and, and, and then I, I'd go out and tell people on Hollywood Boulevard and other places and take the bus out and and I used to go out with a pair of cartels and I'd chant for 20 minutes and then I'd go and distribute books and I'd chant again. And anyway, point being is that, that it was an overflow of my own enthusiasm. And that kind of preaching then that will very much foster inner growth as well. So the two complement one another. Reaching in allows one to reach out and reaching out takes one within as well. So in Mahaprabhu's Leela then he's reaching out from deep within, this is Audarja, that Madhurja that's deep within, that's exploding within him, he's reaching out, and at a certain point, that outreach causes him, enables him to go so far within that he can't come out anymore. And Antilila begins, and he's pretty much cut off from his associates, and uh, other than Srup Daman and Ramananda Roy, who are keeping him, and uh, he's not in the general public much and he's to himself and and he's showing us another stage of the development Nambhajan internal life and there we see that in the leelas that he's contemplating are the leelas of separation so Bhaktivinoda Thakur teaches us that when you begin that stage these leelas will be most favorable and helpful to contemplate when you're capable of contemplating them with purified heart and, and so forth so Mahaprabhu is showing the way and standing, like I say, as the Vipralamba Murti, showing us the virtues of separation and how it will... That, that is, the, as I say, the, the kind of uh, entry point. So we, we give a lot of emphasis to that 
in the Sampradaya, largely for sadhana. We emphasize in Bhava Bhakti, but this cultivation up to Prem, we emphasize the uh, Vipralamba. In the Leela, of course, it's, I say, it's Vipralamba, it's union, and nobody wants separation in one sense, but it comes anyway, at least in the Aprakat Leela, to some extent, for gopis and others. But the two are complementary to one another. Sometimes people get in an argument, Vipralamba's better or Samboga, these are very mundane arguments for the most part. So, a few words about separation relative to your dance, and then maybe we should say something about Gita Govinda, one of those higher books that nobody should read, but we can dance about. Same. <laughs> uh, of course, it's a wonderful book, Gita Govinda, and it's uh, written by Jayadev Goswami, and um, who appeared quite some time before Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We say that this wonderful ideal came through Chaitanya Sampradaya. Madhavendra Puri had appeared, and then Ishvarapuri gave it to Mahaprabhu, and this way it's been distributed to the world. But here we find it previous to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the writings of Jaidev, for example, and there are others also. But they were not in a Sampradaya, and they weren't systematically teaching about it. There is very little tattva, if you will, in uh, Gita Govinda. But I was very pleased to see that, uh, to hear that uh, what little there is that I've spoken about was uh, uh, heard by Gorangi Priya and it stuck with her and she repeated it. At least I've emphasized it before. The preface to Gita Govinda is the Das Avatar Stotram. And if you look at it carefully, you see what it's saying there. Loudly it's saying, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, which is the main point of tattva in the whole of the Srimad Bhagavatam, that the book in terms of tattva orbits around. Jiva Goswami said it's the key to understanding the whole Bhagavatam, that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God. All of the implications of that are very are immense and it's very far-reaching, of course, but we find in the Dasavatar Stotram, Keshavadrita, Mina Sharira, Keshavadrita, Narahari Rupa, and, and so forth, and a couple other statements after that that are part of the whole introduction. He's saying that Krishna is the source of all the avatars, and as you said, it's prefaced by this to help us understand that this boy dancing with this girl is just not an ordinary affair. This is the supreme Swayam Bhagavan himself. So other than that, of course, then as I say, there's very little in the books of Chandidas and whatnot. You don't find any tattva, any explanation, any philosophy to explain these love poems. And... Uh, with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and a Sampradaya, then you find a wealth of that. Not so much in him personally, he didn't say too much, or I should say he didn't write too much, just the Shikshastakam, but his followers, commissioned by him as they were, they wrote so much to explain all these things. So Gita Govinda, it's an important book, but because of its kind of lack of tattva, it could be easily misunderstood, and, uh, and without a taste for that, it won't be a very interesting book to most people. Most people will be more interested in philosophy because their orientation is more intellectual. Bhava and feeling, that will come later if you would digest the philosophy to the extent that you apply it. And seriously, not just you keep it in your head and repeat it to other people and increase your ego that you know so much and you're a big devotee, but if you actually apply it and become humble and a good servitor and so forth and so on, then some feeling can come.
and as that feeling comes, then these leelas will be relishable. Somebody told me the other day that the acharya came by somewhere and said that he found that leelas were boring. That all the descriptions of Krishna's pastimes were boring. Not a real good position to be in. But obviously he must have liked the philosophy. And that's the case for most sadhakas. They like the philosophical points. And of course some people don't like philosophy and that's going to be a problem. They just like the stories. The stories without philosophy you just become superstitious and sentimental and uh, you don't really understand it. Chanting without some mandagyan. fellow we visited last night, we ran into, I should say, told us that he just wished the groups to get together and just chant. And he wasn't in any group and and it's all just about chanting anyway. But Narutam says it's about chanting in the association of devotees. Where obviously you're going to get some mandagyan and that will be fruitful. So these two, they be combined. But at any rate, my point is that our orientation is going to be a little intellectual. We have to convince people. We have to be convinced logically because we have some bhakti sukriti that has reached a point that by good sangha, good association, faith can come. Then we'll be disposed psychologically to accept the logic of Gaudiya Vaishnavism as if it makes perfect sense and, and it defeats every other philosophy and so on and so forth. But as, you know, if we get into it further, we understand philosophy is very limited in terms of explaining experience that's beyond words, beyond language, and beyond thought. Again, our Gaudiya Vaishnava charities have done a wonderful job of giving logic. It's pretty good. But um, any logic falls short of explaining something, as I say, that transcends logic, reason, language, and so forth. But they've done it again, as I said in the beginning, in a compelling way to get us involved so that we can experience the thing that transcends uh, rational exercise. But nonetheless, our orientation in the beginning will be more rational and uh, we convince them of the logic, you're not the God, you're not God, right? How could you be God? You know, these kind of arguments. And you should be kind to people. What about animals? She's your mother. And so many arguments, further it goes. And that logic is keeping us. So we're a little attracted to the philosophy and, and whatnot. Hopefully, though, by applying it, like I say, we get attracted to the Lila, at some point, that will retire the philosophy for us. And if that's the status in, in Golok, as we well know, they're not interested in hearing that Krishna is God in, in so many ways and so on and so forth. So, at any rate, the Gita Govinda books like this, they're not full of philosophy, but they do show us something wonderful, and they are wonderful. But they won't be that helpful for people in the beginning. People might be confused, or they might be charmed on some level, but not compelled to take up all that is required to arrive there. Love, after all, arises out of sacrifice. This doesn't... Of course, people do just fall in love, and you could just fall in love with Krishna, but not when the heart is full of so many other things. It's not possible. Therefore, it begins with Chaitadarpana Marjanam, with cleansing, Mahaprabhu's teaching of the heart, in the context of developing love. But So, anyway, Gita Govinda, books like this, they have their place, and one of the wonderful things they show us is that how user-friendly, in one sense, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is, compared to other disciplines, that you can enact it, you can participate it through dance, through music, as we know, through cuisine, and all human activities. So again, it's very it's user-friendly, and it, as I said earlier, it, it brings that uh, union between Vedanta and humanity about the Vedanta that kind of scientifically dissects everything and emotions disappear and everything disappears. All the forms and names and all, they're not what they, our personality is 
disappears, it's not us, and so forth. A truth that does away with what we know to be beauty, but then here comes Gaudi Vaishnavism to validate the human experience. It brings these two together, and therefore it's expressible in all modes of human experience. Music, dance, art, uh, literature, and so on and so forth. That makes it, as I say, very user-friendly. And so we saw a nice example of this, bringing such a high topic to us through through dance. And um, I tried to give a small, uh, short purport to that. <laughs> Excuse me for the length of that. So I wanted to say something. Thank you for listening. Does anyone have any questions about anything? Yes. You said that it's not good to have no taste for the philosophy, but only have taste for the Leela, like they kind of go together. But if one doesn't have such a great taste for philosophy, I mean, like our children, that's kind of how we bring yeah. them in, is, you know, the stories of Krishna and the demons and, you know, all these things, and they love it. Is it, I mean, will they eventually have a taste for the philosophy? Will they want to know more from the Leela? Or is it kind of like you're going to have to put them both there? Or can one kind of gather a taste for the philosophy from having already a taste for the Leela? I mean, will one kind of follow the other if it's there and it's being given, or...? So an example you gave of children, if Krishna are listening to the Leela and they like Krishna and so on and so forth, and as many of them do, first of all, I guess, do they have to become philosophical about it as well? And certainly uh, they, you know, they do. They have to reason about it themselves when they come to the age of reasoning and so forth, they have, and they do. And um, a lot of times they reason it away, but it doesn't go away entirely. They can't quite really get away from it. Is what we see, and even if they appear to have gotten away from it, they haven't. It'll come back around. They are developing like tender faith that's not well reasoned. When a new person comes, we give them reasoning, and they develop tender faith also. But they have to reason more about it. Ultimately, people really have to sort it out. People have to come to realize even that the philosophy kind of well, they don't have to, but. Gaudi Vaishnavism asks us to tax our intelligence as well as our body. And the way it asks us to tax our intelligence is to study the Bhagavatam. It's full of philosophy, right? So, anyway, they have to come to accept it philosophically. And either they'll do that by eventually having an existential crisis. My parents have told me I'm supposed to be a devotee. What does it mean to be a devotee? Other people aren't devotees. And what am I? Why am I? And then um, they'll reason about it, hopefully in the right way, and, and, and come to that. So I think, yeah, both things are going to have to be there. And the attraction that they have is kind of superficial in one sense, because it can go away as they start to grow and start to reason. So then they have to reason it back, so to speak. But then again, you know, we're talking about something that's happening over lifetimes and people obviously are born into all these families with a predisposition for devotion for a reason and so it gets a little complicated we're not starting from scratch with everybody here so it depends on their background but generally the two they go together the philosophy and and then again some people will be more philosophically inclined than others so like you know i'm pretty philosophical you don't have to be like me don't burden yourself you know but but if you can attach yourself to people who have reasoned it out pretty well, that will be good for you. That's why the Bhagavatam says that nityam bhagavata sevaya, right? Regularly hearing the Bhagavatam. And if we go to Chaitanya Charitamrita, what do we find? 
when Krishnadas Kaviraj is explaining his Namaskar verse, he says, Vande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sahodito Bodadai Pushpabanto Chitro Sandrotamunando. He offers his obeisance to the deity of his book, Gaur Nityananda, rising and Goda and uh, destroying the darkness, Tamonudo and Samdo, giving the highest benefit. When he's explaining that verse in his book, he says the way in which this Samdo, this ultimate complete gift of Prem, is attained is that these two brothers, Gaur and Nityananda, they bring us in touch with what? Two Bhagavatas. The Granta, the great Granta, the book, Srimad Bhagavatam, and the devotee, who's kind of personifies the Bhagavatam, who's the Bhuvika, Rasika Bhuvi Bhavuka, who's relishing the Bhagavatam, that kind of a person. You know, Prabhupada used to tell us the two Bhagavatas. So this is where the idea comes from, Chaitanya Charitamrita. And serving these two Bhagavatas, either the book Bhagavata, the person Bhagavata, or obviously both. And it may also play out that, well, some people are going to be more philosophically inclined to really study the book. Others may not have that temperament. They just attach themselves to somebody who's realized the book. And they regularly serve the Bhagavat. And this way, that brain will come in the heart. So, it's not that everybody has to be a big philosophical genius or something like that. It can be a huge burden. People can have that kind of brain and it's a problem. I personally wasn't born with that kind of brain. My brain has come out of, it's odd, but it's come out of bhakti. I don't have any education beyond barely getting out of high school. And um, I didn't find anything you know, to do or meaningful in life to get involved in until I met Prabhupada. And then I just went out and preached and sold books and studied them because I had to explain it to people and people would ask questions and I'd want to know the answers and so forth. So my brain kind of came out of that. So it hasn't been a burden to me, but I can understand how brain can be a big problem for people. They, it needs to be satisfied, and uh, it won't be. Nothing will satisfy it, so you've got to put it in its place. Of course, it's true. I said people come based on logic, but also people come based on not so much philosophy, but they like the colors and the prashadam and the exotic nature of the whole thing, or sometimes we realize this guy, this gal's not going to get this point, so we just try to give him prasadam. Or I used to, you know, try to sell a book to somebody, and when I saw this guy's going to be a tough case here, then I'd ask him, "Can you hold that for me for a minute?" And, and he'd hold the book, and I'd pretend I was doing something else. And my thought was, "Let him hold the book; that'll be good for him. You know, <laughs> if he holds it long enough, he's going to get some sukriti for holding the bag with him. Then I'll be able to advance my point <laughs> on him." <laughs> He's a tough case, you know. This is how I used to think. So there's some scope for that, too. So, but, but at any rate, generally, our faith is tender. Our attraction is there. But if it's not backed by philosophical understanding, it's weak. That's why Rupa Goswami says, there's three types of people who tread this path. Three degrees of eligibility to tread the path of bhakti. There's three different degrees of faith. There's weak faith, tender faith, komal shraddha. There's firm faith. And then there's firm faith that's informed, well-informed, from the scriptural edifice. And so there's a, one who's less qualified to tread the path, who will have more difficulty, whose faith is weak, which is also for a beginner, obviously, it's going to be weak. And then there's firm faith. That person's going to be better situated to tread the path. And then informed faith means, like I said, it's informed by scripture. So it's in our interest to become more informed 
It will help us to tread. The, we'll know what path we're on, why we're on it, what's not the path, and what is the path. Anyway, tender faith is, in one sense, the beginning also. And that tender faith becomes firm by interfacing our heart with our head. That's how it happens. We start to reason about, why am I doing... I mean, we may reason in the beginning, yeah, this is right, this is right, and then figure it all out. But later on, there's a kind of a, there may be a deeper reasoning about it and questioning your faith and so forth. And these things come as problems, but they're really not. Like the disappearance of the guru and all these problems. It's there to help us, actually. Test us what you learn. So then you interface your reason with your with your heart and you may reach conclusions that you wouldn't have otherwise. It might take you different places. What is the philosophy? What's it really being said? What is the desire, for example, of, in my case, of Prabhupada? What did he want from me? He wanted this, that, and the other thing, but for what purpose? And I had to think about those kind of things. We all do. So, anyway, with that kind of thing, that it's a burden. And sometimes we, ah, it's controversial. I don't want to talk about that. Just let's be just devotees. I can appreciate that, but Krishnadas Kaviras, what does he say? Siddhanta Boliyachite. Siddhanta Boliyachite. Suddhidhamanasa, so he's giving a point in his book. He's establishing that Krishna's source of Narayana, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, was Krishna, which is like revolutionary at the time. And he's going into great depth to explain it. And he says, this is really controversial. I know I'm stirring up some controversy, but don't shy away from it because this comes to strengthen you. You have to think about it. What's right? What's wrong? You know, you can bury your head in the sand for a while, but at some point you've got to make a decision on issues that come to bear. And in good company, the right decision is usually the most uncomfortable one. Looks like you're going to get the most flack for it, and, and most people won't be agreeing with you, and your friends may become angry or disturbed with you. <laughs> That's how it was to join Krishna consciousness in the first place for most people. So to progress also. If you're going to progress, then and that opportunity to do so is coming to you in the form of some crisis issue that's not affecting other people, you're going to progress beyond them. They're going to be left behind, likely. Maybe you can bring them with you, but don't wait to convince them. That's how you join. So ongoing progress comes to us like this. It comes in the form of, often in the form of crises. So we have to exercise our reason in a spiritual way. What is the philosophy? How is it to be applied in this instance? What's really being said? And that takes our tender heart of faith and harmonizes it with our head. This is the whole business of the Madhyamadikari. To the extent that we do that, we're engaged in that exercise, we're moving away from a Kanishta orientation to Bhakti to an intermediate orientation to Bhakti, which brings us to the possibility of ongoing experience, which is obviously very confirming, and therefore you become fixed, you become confident, you speak loudly, and people think you're proud and so forth because you're really sure of yourself. (laughs) It's a problem. From there, of course, then that kind of involvement with a constant continued experience and unbreaking and so forth, it brings taste, ruchi, and then, then what happens is this whole intellectual thing, it gets subordinated. It's not present. It's kind of the heart's in the front in the beginning, then intellect comes, and if it's not done right, intellect will do away with the heart. Therefore, that's, this should be done, this exercise of growth in good company, when you start reasoning about your heart and so forth.
and somebody says, like we were told last night, I don't believe in the codicy. If I need grains, I'll go to hell and believe that. I don't do that anymore. And there's more to it than that. And there's you know, ways to think about it and so forth that are uh, reasonable, practical and so forth. So without that, then they give it up. It's possible. So this is a, a delicate phase from the Kanishtagadikari to the Mandimanika. But arriving there on board, it's like Kanishtagadikari is like on the shore. Madhyamadakari is like on a raft in the water. It moves like this. It's kind of like being in the water. This is the water. But actually, <laughs> there's more to it than that even. So at least he's on the raft. Then he makes a dive in the water. Then it's a different thing altogether still. It's more of the same, so to speak. Beyond what he could fathom standing on the raft itself. So the Madhyamadakari, he comes to Ruchi. Bhakti Minotaku says, Ruchi means Shuddha. He has no other desire, Kavitamba. So it's pure. This is then beginning of Uttam, Uttam Bhakti, real expression of Uttam Bhakti, Ruchi, Asakti. Then he goes to Bhav Bhakti. She goes to Brahm Bhakti, like this. And as this Ruchi comes, then this intelligence, which was in the background before and the tender heart was in the front, and then it came to the fore and almost eclipsed the heart, but you survived and the heart became strong and then intelligence in Ruchi is again subordinated to the heart, it's retired. And the devotee has a kind of super logic to answer questions and think about things and he can never be, she can never be converted. It's what was medicine has become food now and uh, carried on, carried on to attachment to bhakti, then attachment to the object of bhakti. Nasakti and sadhana is finished and bhava bhakti and so on. So that's the progression. What else? Yes? In regards to submission, this is like taking shelter of, of the guru. Is that the... Submission means submission to Krishna. I submit to Krishna, to the will of Krishna. I pray that I won't be distracted by my senses and other desires, and I appeal to Krishna to help me in that regard because I'll be better suited to love you. That's part of the path. I have to get through this. And so rather than longing, oh, Krishna, I want to dance with you, or I really, even the higher prayers and so forth are all about longing for union with Krishna. They will be more appropriate in Bhava Bhakti and in Sadhana Bhakti than, let's say, submission. O Krishna, O Radha, O Govinda, O Gopi Janabalava, I give myself to you with sacrifice. Love comes out of sacrifice. So submission doesn't mean, you know, like, do whatever the temple president says necessarily. It could mean that, but it depends who the temple president is and what, what well, how Krishna conscious he is. And those things can be abused. And this is what you're kind of maybe hinting at too. The idea of submission, look at it philosophically, submission to Krishna, submission to the teachings to the Siddhanta, to the conclusions, to bhakti and the practice of bhakti. And then use your common sense in relation to practical situations when you might be, where someone might, as possible, abuse authority and in the name of submission, make you, kind of dumb you down and not allow you to, to be a thinking person. Godi Vaishnavism is supposed to be full of independently thoughtful people, it was Prabhupada's idea. People can think for themselves. Like, I had a good fortune after Prabhupada left of having the, the, uh, the association and shelter of Pujapatridhar Maharaj. And one of the things he said to me was that Prabhupada gave you everything, he said. He stored all this inside of you. 
And in doing so, he often told you not to think, which he did. Don't think, just, you know, listen, let it all go in. So now he's gone. Now you have to think about the things that he gave you, what they mean, how to apply them in his absence, and so forth. Just like, you know, the father's taking care of the son, and, and the son's working for the father's business, and he's telling him, do it like this, do it like that, don't think about that, do it like this, do it like this. Then when the father's gone, the son's got to do it himself, right? To one extent or another. So then he's got to think about, oh, my father said this, why did he say that? What were we doing at that time? What was the circumstance? And does this apply now in this circumstance? Or, or is that instruction relative to then and that shouldn't be applied now? And all this kind of thinking. So he said, as a good uncle, he said, now you've got to think about all those things. This is what it's about. That's what the disappearance of the guru is about. You've got to think about all those things. So I personally try to get my students to think ahead before I leave. Think now about all these things. <laughs> but anyway, that's there. I mean, there's so there's a place for thinking about all this stuff. What does it mean? And we also say you need to stop the mind and you know don't think and and so on. But that should be get super thinking, thinking about Krishna consciousness. You know, you have to come up with original ideas. You have to write your own page in this, ultimately. Your name is there in the book, this page, and you've got to write your story. It's not all going to be thought out for you, every step. Guidelines are going to be given. All the books are, you know, but outlines to the whole thing. I mean, I, like I said, you can't do justice to what it is in words and language and logic and philosophy. That's our teaching. So you've got to apply yourself, and, and you're going to get inspired thought if you apply yourself. And then you're going to want to, of course, check that with somebody who's, who is of spiritual consequence. And if your thought is spiritually progressive and so forth, you're going to find people who confirm that. That's the whole experience of guru in a really basic sense. We have certain feelings in our heart about life, and it's not working for us. It's not making sense. We can't articulate it exactly what it is, but along comes the guru and articulates what we're feeling in our heart in a way that, yeah, I resonate with that. That makes sense. Yes. He's saying, I couldn't say it, but he's actually a manifestation of your own heart. This is the teaching of Chaitanya Charitamrita. Antaryami comes outside. And he says it clearly so that you can't miss it. But what he's saying, it's not a foreign thing. It's really not. You couldn't say it, you couldn't articulate it, but that's why, yeah, you feel attraction, likeness. Because it's your home. The home is in the heart, the homeland of the heart, a home-knowing person is hitting home by speaking to you. So the point is that as you go on with the practice, then you're going to start to think about Gaudiya Vaishnavism in a spiritual way. What the implication is of the philosophy in life in general, what in so many layers of what all these things mean, all these words and concepts and and so forth. So they're no longer just dogma, right? They really come take on a whole life and the whole world is a chintu beta beta, you know, for example. Wow. Or the whole world is, for example, you know, Radha's love for Krishna and they're seeing him everywhere and everything, everything reminding yeah, you have to uh, be submissive, and if you do, this is what should result in it. Not that you just be a dumb person and can't think and can't make any decisions. and We're all different, of course, but we do have to think a little bit.
for ourselves. At least think this far. Find somebody who you have confidence in that knows what this is, has experience with this, and attach yourself to that person. That's a good idea. Let them make decisions. So if in the absence of guru, you get help, right? That's the whole idea of a, a siksha guru. It's not a foreign imposition any more than the diksha guru is. It's the same um, reality manifesting in a nuanced way to help us. It's the same person, Krishna, Guru Tattva, coming to us to help us. So, it, you know, it wasn't even the point, was it, when Prabhupada was here, Siksha Guru, we didn't even know what it meant practically, we kind of knew, but it wasn't an issue because Prabhupada was the Guru, Diksha Guru, Siksha Guru, there was nobody else. His absence, all of a sudden, it becomes, a, whoa, where was this word, what does it mean, what are all the implications of that, so on and so forth. And, and we were so confused about it that somebody takes a Siksha Guru and they say, you know, he left Prabhupada, and that's a pretty confused idea of what it means, what the books say. It's just an example. <laughs> so, does that help? Yeah. Listen submissively we means, you know, with a with view to serve, to find out how to serve, really. So, here's a hard service, think. Uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> okay. Is it fair to ask that? Think. Think and reflect, you know, deeply. This is a serious thing, Krishna consciousness. <laughs> we all came for something very serious here. We give our whole lives for this. Think about it. Think about it deeply. What does it mean? How to go there? It's troublesome to do so, but when we do, our life is so much happier. And like I say, oftentimes, it'll become clear to us, this is the way to go. But there'll be obstacles. Don't let those obstacles get in the way. Gopis heard the flute of Krishna. There were a thousand eight reasons for them not to go. Good reasons. All kind of good reasons. Luckily for us, they didn't listen to him. And we've got something called Gaudiya Vaishnavism. They went. They followed. So we've got to be a little courageous. It's an exciting thing. <laughs> it's not a boring life. And Gaudiya Vaishnavism comes to tax us entirely in every possible way consume us. So, what else? Any other comments? The one thing I'm wondering about is Diksha Guru, the initiator. Sometimes some people say that depending on the conception of the person who gives initiation, those mantras are infused with a particular power that will affect the one eventually in a certain way. So, and you may not even know what that is. And it's kind of like the beginning of spiritual life. And how dependent is our development on that? On diksha? Well, on... on Developing who, in a particular who, way? Who you get diksha from, and I guess that's the main thing. So how dependent is our ultimate attainment in terms of any particulars, like a taste for loving Krishna, for example, bhava, prem, dependent upon who we get initiated by? Yeah. It's at least part of the question. Yeah. Right. Well, um, it's a good question, and um, there's um, a few things to consider in answering it. And one of them is that this is a, obviously a continuum. People are engaged in bhakti for many lifetimes, and so they're going to get initiated in different lifetimes, right? And they're going to get initiated in this lifetime and quickly grow to the point where they left off in the last lifetime. Then the work begins to go to the next stage. 
So in that sense, there may be a number of initiating gurus, right? Of course, all of them are Krishna coming to us and giving initiation. But there are different levels of gurus, obviously. At some point, we're going to get initiated by and get the association of a devotee who is in the same sentiment that we are. Or we're going to get a Siksha Guru who's in that same sentiment. And that Siksha Guru will help us, ultimately. We're going to enter into a particular group in Vrindavan, and we're going to be a group leader. And that person and that sentiment is going to be our sentiment. We can say it's eternal, predestined, something like that. It's somewhere in the mind of Krishna. But it won't come out without association. And that'll be the association of somebody in that sentiment. The association doesn't produce it because it's not something that can be produced. It's eternally existing. But it will be the catalyst and it will bring it out. Either through diksha or siksha. The general case is it's diksha and then you get the siksha and, and you're attracted to that particular guru because that's part of the whole unseen kind of system. Because you have a particular sentiment, you're being attracted to somebody in that sentiment, even though that sentiment isn't, you're not aware that you're attracted to it. But it can happen at any rate, and Vishwanachakritakur explains this very clearly in Raghavart Machandrika, that either through diksha, in connection with the diksha guru, that will happen, or in connection with the siksha guru, either way. Does that help? So it's not entirely dependent upon the diksha. In some instances, the diksha guru will make, take a more prominent role in the devotee's life. In some instances, the siksha guru will take a more prominent role in the devotee's life. We find many examples of the latter in Chaitanya Charitamrita, where the siksha guru plays a more important role than the diksha guru. And there are examples to the contrary, where the diksha guru takes a more prominent role. These are different uh, ways in which Bhagavan helps us. Siksha and Diksha. People like to argue Diksha is more important, Siksha is more important. Once we ask Sridhar Marsh who the most important guru is, you know, you've got the Diksha guru, you've got the Siksha guru, there's the Sannyas guru, there's the Vagma Padaksha guru, there's the Ragmar guru, you know, there's parents or gurus, there's all kind of gurus out there, right? And so we ask, what's the most important guru? You know what he said? The one that helps you the most. Wow, that's a pretty spiritual answer. <laughs> Transcends all formalities. And, and so that should be celebrated. Like if you have a godbrother who's initiated by the same guru and then he develops getting more help from a siksha guru, let's say, then what's the problem? He's not with us anymore. You know, it's not like that. <laughs> Where's us? Where are we going here? What's this all about? You know? So at any rate, it's not entirely dependent upon, it's locked. Now, I took the diksha here, I'm going to be locked into this. That should help you. Of course, this guru, if he has a lot of realization, then um, that's better. Let's put it like that, that's better. What else? Yeah. It seems that sometimes people, they have a diksha guru, and they may be attracted to a shiksha guru because they have this conception that if I'm taking shelter anywhere else than I'm minimizing my present guru, you know, my Diksha guru. guru. But why? I mean, what would be the reason for that? I mean, they're teaching the same thing. Right? The teaching is to serve Krishna. So, in my case, 
if I have a disciple who is initiated by me, and I find that someone else is helping that disciple more, that's just great. Less work for me. <laughs> and the whole idea is to help the disciple. I mean, it's, that's what it's about. You know, you're just doing it because people think you can help them. So, okay, okay, I'll try to help you. And if they get help from somewhere else, then that's just better. I mean, the whole thing is about help people to grow and develop love for Krishna. It's not about, these are my disciples, like, you know, an insurance policy for chapatis in old age or something like that. <laughs> you know, obviously it has nothing to do with that. It, it's just, you know, I mean, if the Siksha Guru is you know, some crazy person with a different philosophy or something, it's not really helping them. That, you know, that's another thing. But I had two students that were initiated by me. One took Harinam from me, and one took first and second initiation from me. One, one of them, the second one, he was first initiated in ISKCON, that guru left or something like that. And he was very inspired by Sridhar Maharaj. And um, he came to me, Sridhar Maharaj had already passed away. He took initiation from me. One thing that Sridhar Maharaj told us in the beginning was that, so you go and try to do something for Prabhupada, preach. That's what he wanted you to do, so start something. So I was one of the persons he said that to. So we started something. We started initiating and so forth. And he said, some people may come in the beginning. You give them Harinam, they help you. They may not stay. So that happened. Prabhupada was giving Harinam in New York. And not everybody stuck around as the thing developed more. And there was more order to it and so forth. But you need somebody to help you. So get going and it won't be any harm to them. And then um, he said, then there may be some people, given all the circumstances of all this lack of faith and so forth, the faith crisis in ISKCON and fallen gurus and so forth, some people you may not be able to entirely collect their faith. So I'm different, I'm older, I'm senior, I'm Indian, there's this distance, and of course he's more realized too. So those people whose faith you can't entirely capture, then you bring them to me and then I'll initiate those people. Those whose faith you can capture, let this thing go on, you initiate them and grow in the process as well, under my guidance. So this was his instruction. So we'd do that. And if you couldn't capture his faith, you'd bring him to Sridhar Maharaj, and you'd get initiated by Sridhar Maharaj. And if you could capture his faith, then fine. So there was this one fellow, anyway, this was even after Sridhar Maharaj, but he was influenced by Sridhar Maharaj. Anyway, I captured his faith to an extent, but I saw at a certain point his faith is not growing in the best way. I'm too close. Guru is like the fire, and so you've got to find the right distance. You can't stay away from it, otherwise you don't get any heat and light and can't cook. If you get too close, you get burnt. So He wanted to be close, but I could see it wasn't good for him. And he had already had a guru that had, uh, was an American or something that had fallen. And so this was like, this kind of thing was, was a little too much. So anyway, at a certain point, I said to him, look, best thing for you is, he said, I have so much faith in Chidamar. I said, but Chidamar is not here, so... I said, why don't you go and take shelter of Puri Maharaj, promote Puri Maharaj, who was a, was a godbrother of Prabhupada and Sridhar Maharaj, who was uh, a friendly relationship with Sridhar Maharaj, and he outlived Sridhar Maharaj. So at any rate, I tried to build faith in him in Puri Maharaj. He didn't know Puri Maharaj, but I worked to build faith in Puri Maharaj, in him. And I said, you know, you should take shelter from him. Then I said, now you go to Puri Maharaj and tell him you're my disciple, and then I give you permission to take shelter from being initiated by him. So he did. He went in India and he, and he was all fired up and he asked Purimarsh. Purimarsh wouldn't initiate him. 
He said, you got to give me a written letter from Tripurari Maharaj. And so then I came to India shortly thereafter, and I guess he heard about it, and I got a, a wire or something. I forget how he got it come in. I need a letter, you know. So I wrote a letter and FedExed it or whatever we do in India. I forget. It's not, to Navadweep and, you know, please, Purimaraj, you got my permission to initiate it. And, and um, Purimaraj still said, no, I don't know. I don't know. So then he sent his, who was to be a successor, Bodhayan Maharaj, to Vrindavan, where I was. And Bodhayan Maharaj came to me and said, you sure you give your full blessing to this? And you're comfortable? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. I said, he's a headache for me, Maharaj. I said, <laughs> be honest with you, you know, this guy's a problem. My only reservation for sending the Purimaraj is I don't want him to be a problem for Purimaraj. And this fellow was from Russia, and at the time, uh, don't take it in a negative way, but at the time, Bodhimar said, oh yeah, all the Russians are problems, we know that, in our moth anyway. <laughs> so we could take another problem, I guess. I said, no, I don't mean that I don't really want to give a burden to Puri Maharaj. You know. So then he took initiation from Puri Maharaj. And there was another fellow, and I was quite happy about it, and I, I just wanted him to be, you know, to flourish. That's the whole idea. So another fellow, an Indian fellow, who took Harinam from me, he was very orthodox, very orthodox, a nice fellow, and I'm still in close touch with him. And he was working in America in the computer industry for a year, year and a half, or something like that. And then he met up with Balabhatirtha Maharaj, who is the successor of Madhav Maharaj, one of Prabhupada's godbrothers. Very nice Vaishnav, and uh, he developed attraction for him and so forth. So he wanted to take second initiation from him. He told me about it. I said, oh, it was a wonderful idea. If that's how you're inspired, then I'm fine. Again, Balab Tirthamarsh insisted that I you know, make it real clear that I had no, you know, wasn't a problem. And I did so, and I gave him to uh, Balab Tirthamarsh, and he initiated him. So. And Prabhupada did something like that, too. There was a disciple of his who had first came in contact with Gaudiya Vaishnavism through Madhav Maharaj. But then he got caught up in the wave of Prabhupada's mission, which was huge in India, and like, wow, such a big thing. So he came and he got initiated by Prabhupada. But after some time... His affinity for Madhav Marsh kept surfacing. And so he went to Prabhupada and asked him about it. And Prabhupada said, okay. And then he wrote a letter to Madhav Marsh and sent it to Madhav Marsh and Madhav Marsh. Prabhupada released him and Madhav Marsh initiated him. So this is the spirit of the whole thing. It's, uh, it's not about any particular institution. It's, it's about uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Let's make it work for people. And faith is such an important thing. It's, it's everything. And so we should do whatever we can to, to foster it and help it. Unfortunately, faith is our deity, but it's become the doorstep that people wipe their feet on in many instances. They're so quick to, like, trample on somebody's faith. It's our deity, Shraddha Devi. And they're just so quick in the name of my guru, you know, or defense to Guru Tattva. That's an unfortunate condition. It's really, you know, it makes it difficult to preach. You've got this unfaithful atmosphere everywhere. It's, you know, all these obstacles, and it's like a landmine, you know, kind of minefield. You, know. you say something, you don't know what it triggers off in somebody's head. and So, you're all nice people, you're all sincere people. Let's work together, you know, regardless of what group or place we're in or whatnot. And, and these ideas should connect us. These are, this is Gaudiya Vaishnava, and this should connect us. And we should have a heart connection based on this feel at one and go forward and represent Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And if you agree with this or your group or leader or temple president doesn't, then change them, at least by teaching or by, or by example. There's a, a stranglehold on this Gaudiya Vaishnavism in terms of going out and reaching out and being everything that it is. 
<laughs> we're strangling it by our understanding or lack of understanding in many instances of this, particularly this Guru Tattva. It's a difficult uh, subject. So anyway, I'm really happy to meet with all of you tonight and some of you have been coming to most of my talks here as much as you can given your circumstances and so forth. And I've been moving around so everybody's not living in all those places, but uh, it's been very good for me, helpful for me, and I appreciate it. I hope to come again. Hare Krishna. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai.